I once again invite you to join me in the book of Jeremiah. We are covering a considerable amount of territory today, admittedly. Chapter 11 through chapter 20. Now you say there are times when you do biblical exposition that you camp at a particular verse and you stay there and you try to draw out everything that's in it. There are other times you take a broader view, a higher altitude look, you could say. Uh, it's, for me, somewhat reminiscent of being a child and going to Six Flags back when they had the uh, cable gondola ride. Anybody remember that? You could actually get in this little gondola, maybe six or eight people, and it would take you up over the park and take you to the back of the park, and it would bring you back as well. Now, I, as far as rides go, it was dull. It was boring. It was nothing that you really wanted to do, except for one thing. Well, maybe two. One, it allowed you to see where everything was. So then you could determine which ride you wanted to get to. Secondly, it was a great way to scout for the rest of the youth group that you were hanging out with and wondered where they had gotten themselves to. This is something of an overview approach to the book of Jeremiah. In fact, I titled this Six Protests and One Promise, and I'll explain myself shortly. So come along for some readings. Chapter 11, beginning at verse 18. The Lord made it known to me, and I knew. Then you showed me their deeds. But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me. They devised schemes, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be remembered no more. But, O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I've committed my cause. Chapter 12, verse 1. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither for the evil of those who dwell in it? The beasts and the birds are swept away because they said, He will not see our latter end. Chapter 15, verse 10. Chapter 15, verse 10. Woe to me, my mother, that you bore me, a man of strife and contention to the whole land, I have not lent, nor have I borrowed, yet all of them curse me. The Lord said, Have I not set you free for the good? Have I not pleaded for you before the enemy in the time of trouble and in the time of distress? Can one break iron, iron from the north and bronze? Chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 14. 
Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Behold, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. I've not run away from being your shepherd, nor have I desired the day of sickness. You know what came out of my lips. It was before your face. Be not a terror to me. You're my refuge in the day of disaster. Let those be put to shame who persecute me. Let me not be put to shame. Let them be dismayed. Let me not be dismayed. Bring upon them the day of disaster. Destroy them with double destruction. Chapter 18, verse 19. Jeremiah 18, 19. Hear me, O Lord, and listen to the voice of my adversaries. Should good be repaid with evil? Yet they have dug a pit for my life. Remember how I stood before you to speak good for them, to turn away your wrath from them. Therefore deliver up their children to famine, give them over to the power of the sword, let their wives become childless and widowed. May their men meet death by pestilence, their youths be struck down by the sword in battle. May a cry be heard from their houses when you bring the plunderer suddenly upon them, for they've dug a pit to take me and laid snares for my feet. Yet you, O Lord, know all their plotting to kill me. Forgive not their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of the end. And then finally, chapter 20, Jeremiah 20 at verse 7. O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I've become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become to me a reproach and derision all day long. If I say, I'll not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I'm weary with holding it in, and I cannot. For I hear many whispering terrors on every side. Denounce him, let us denounce him, say all my close friends, watching for my fall. Perhaps he'll be deceived, then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Grant to us now, Father, that we rightly see, hear, and apply this your word. Let us hear it powerfully. And may it be both conviction and encouragement for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you were to tool your way through these chapters, you would find some texts that are very well-known and familiar. In chapter 13, verse 23, we've all heard this at some point. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Or in chapter 15, verse 1, Then the Lord said to me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight, let them go. Or in chapter 17, at verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. 
to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. All of those texts are powerful. They're worthy of significant study. You could take time to look at those. But this morning, I'm directing your attention to consider first the six protests that Jeremiah makes. Now, the picture I get here is that Jeremiah and his companion Baruch, who is the one who gathers the word, writes it down and arranges it, as they've worked on this together, Jeremiah said, well, let's put these things together because it summarizes all the times I protested what I was doing and what was being done to me. Traditionally, as one brother puts it, these words of the prophet have been labeled his confessions, an unhelpful tradition in my mind. To confess means to say with. We confess our sins when we go along with what God says about them. We confess our faith when we go along with what God says about himself. But going along with what God says is precisely not what Jeremiah is doing here. On the contrary, he is objecting. He is protesting. These so-called confessions are better termed as protests. That is how we shall consider them. One of the things that, to me, drives my faith in the Scripture, my confidence in the fidelity of the text and the usefulness of it, is its absolute painful honesty. The characters you meet in the Bible are real. They're not plaster. They're not made up. They're not prettified. They're not cleaned up for proper presentation. They are actually shown to us with all the ugliness and the struggle they endured. You see, we think serving the Lord should come without any emotional distress or discomfort. It ought to all be all joy, all happy, all the time. And then when you find out it isn't, you don't know what to do with yourself. You're not sure anymore. My friends, serving the Lord may be a painfully fulfilling calling. In fact, I'm not even say may. Let me just be blunt and say, serving the Lord is a painfully fulfilling calling. Now, please, so I'm going to go, oh, great, bummer today. I was hoping for rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, and this sounds like something else entirely. Well, it is and it isn't. We are called to joy, and the Christian life ought to reflect joy in the Lord. But there's also an element of suffering and darkness that we see in fulfilling our calling as believers in this world. Not everybody's going to love what you say. Not everybody's going to be happy for the things for which you stand. In fact, they may well hate you. And the Lord Jesus even warned us, did he not? If they hated me, what makes you think you're any better? They will hate you as well. So let's consider for a moment the protesting prophet. And again, we're hitting high points here. You have time 
as you have time, I'd encourage you to look back at these. The first protest is found in that 11th chapter. It's the first one we read. It starts at verse 18, goes to verse 23. The setting is before that in verses 1 to 17, chapter 11, where he lays out that they had broken the covenant. And his summary of the covenant is that it extends all the way back to Egypt and Exodus. It was what they agreed to keep, and they were warned of the consequences, but they had broken the covenant, and ultimately comes down verses 14 and following in chapter 11, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer on their behalf, for I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their trouble. And then the words of the protest. You see, they had once been a beautiful olive tree. That's the imagery in chapter 11, verses 16 and 17. But a great tempest is coming. What is it that Jeremiah says in his protest? Here I am in Jerusalem. I'm right under the nose of the king. I'm delivering the message of judgment from sin. Here I am. Here I am, as I was described by the Lord in chapter 1, verse 18, a fortified city, an iron pillar, bronze walls against the whole land, the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. And while I'm doing this, wondering whenever the king and his officials and the people of Jerusalem are going to come and get me, it doesn't come at me that direction. Where does it come from? The last place he expected home. The Lord made it known to me, verse 18, and I knew you showed me their deeds. I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me. They devised schemes saying, let's destroy the tree with its fruit. They're talking about his destruction. And then you find the rest of it. Verse 21, therefore thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth. Where was Jeremiah from? Anathoth, who seek your life. My friends, there are times when you are doing the Lord's will, when you are seeking to live as a believer, that the opposition you face is going to come from places you simply do not expect it. The last people you would expect to be upset with you for following the Lord are the very ones who are bringing you the most grief and pain and sorrow. And Jeremiah's first protest is, Lord, you told me I I was going to be an iron pillar and a bronze wall and all this stuff wasn't going to get to me, but you didn't tell me it was coming from home. That's painful. Oh, by the way, what the Lord promises is, verse 22, I'll punish them. The young men shall die by the sword, their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. None of them shall be left, and I will bring disaster upon the men of Anathoth, the year of their punishment. They're not going to get away with it. Second protest. There at chapter 12, you're already there. Begins at verse 1. And the beginning of it is this. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Now, folks, that is an ongoing question, isn't it? 
We look at the wicked, and the wicked don't seem to have any problems. The godless don't seem to have any worries. Now, we sit back and we say things like, well, they don't understand, and they don't have a very fulfilling life, and I know that they're going to get it in the end, but you look at them now and you're going, hmm, got a raise, got a promotion, got a new book deal, got a new contract. How do you handle it when the wicked prosper? And you see, the Lord's answer to him is this. You don't see the full extent of the problem. The issue is not merely that there's problem in Jerusalem. It's throughout the whole land. And what he basically says is, Jeremiah, you're going to have to grow up. Look at verse 5. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? Now, that's a lovely comparison, right? What's he saying? If you think this is bad, you ain't seen nothing yet, son. This is how bad they are. If in a safe land you're so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? For even your brothers and the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you for their full in full cry after you. Don't believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. Now, I I read this, and I'm reminded that even in his early part of his protest, he'll say, Lord, you're righteous. You know my heart. It's going to be bad. I just didn't realize how bad it was going to be. Christian recognized this. People will at times surprise you in their kindnesses and at times their nobility, even non-Christians. I sometimes think we make a mistake as we talk about the nature of sin in people by making it out like every single non-Christian is the absolute worst human being that ever walked on the face of the earth. And that simply is not true. You may find that you have Christian neighbors who aren't as nice to you as your non-Christian neighbors. When we address the issue of total depravity, what we mean by that, I've said it before, let me say it again, we are not saying that people are as bad as they can be, we are saying that sin has affected every part of the human nature. And there's wickedness in this world, and it should not be surprises but you notice there's also a little hope there at verse 16 in chapter 12 and it shall come to pass if they'll diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives even as they taught my people to swear by Baal and they shall be built up in the midst of my people there's a little hope right there even for these pagans outside of Judah who are going to be used by the Lord for their conversion. Third one, I'm falsely accused, chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 10. Woe is me, my mother, that you bore me, a man of strife and contention in the whole land. I've neither lent nor borrowed, yet they all curse me. It appears that this accusation may have been 
that he had done some financial misdealing. Why else does he use the terminology, I've neither lent nor borrowed? He's saying, they're angry at me, they're falsely accusing me. You ever been falsely accused? You ever had somebody level an accusation against you that was absolutely untrue and had others believe it? What pain. And the Lord promises in the midst of this that he will break them, not him. They will lose everything. Verses 13 and 14, your wealth and your treasures I'll give a spoil without price for all your sins throughout all your territory. I'll make you serve the enemies in a land you do not know, for in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. What is his calling then to Jeremiah in his complaint? Starting at verse 19, it is to be faithful. If you return, I'll restore you. You shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what's worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but shall not turn, you shall not turn to them. All of this is a promise. Jeremiah, you can do this as I enable you. Fourth complaint, chapter 17, at verse 14 and following. Now this comes in a context here. At, at chapter 17, he says, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. This is verse 14. Save me, I shall be saved, for you are my praise. But they say to me, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. Now see, here's what's happened. How long does Jeremiah prophesy the destruction of Jerusalem and Judah? Nominally 50 years. 50 years. And they're not seeing much of anything happen that they can't explain. In fact, in another place, he will talk about terror from the Lord and violence, and they turn around and start calling him a nickname. There's old terror and violence. Tell you what, let's run some terror and violence on him. He's the only one making a declaration of the ugliness that's about to come, and his complaint is, I, I have not run away from being your shepherd. I've desired... I not desire a day of sickness. You know what came out of my lips. It was before your face. Be not a terror to me. You're my refuge in the day of disaster. Let those be put to shame who persecute me. Let, let me not be put to shame. What is he sh shouting about here? Well, if you go back to chapter 16, look at verse 2. What does the Lord say to Jeremiah? You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. He's looking all the way back to what it was like to be a teenager when the Lord called him. And rather than being called to a normal life, he finds he's called to an abnormal life. He's an eccentric. He's single. He's a bachelor. And he lives in the land. He prophesies about the land, but he doesn't participate in the life there. He has no wife. He has no children. Back in chapter 13, you find the Lord tells him to take a, a, a loincloth, as apparently what it was, basically what we'd call some underwear, and hide it in some mud, 
near the river and then get it out and use it as a visible illustration of how the Lord is going to bring destruction, said it's ruined for its purpose. He's a bit weird. In fact, in chapter 16, verse 5, the Lord says, Do not enter the house of mourning, or go to lament or grieve for them, for I've taken away peace from this people. My steadfast love and mercy declares the Lord. The Lord told him he couldn't even go to funerals. He's an oddity. He's a stranger in his own land. I'm well known and I'm hated. I've been your shepherd. It came from my lips, but it wasn't my message, it was yours. I'm not happy to predict disaster. Please don't let me be put to shame. Christian, when I hear that, I cannot help but think about what does the Apostle Paul say? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Folks, does it ever strike you just how weird we are? And I don't mean your natural-born weirdness. I mean, that's yours by birthright, right? Some of you just woke up. Do you understand how odd we are in this world? We hang out with people we ought not be hanging out with because there's really no reason for us to hang out with one another. It defies age barriers. It defies, hear me, political barriers, or should. Amen. I'll say it if nobody else will. I just made some of you terribly nervous. But I love you anyway because you're one of my brothers or sisters in the Lord. We have differing jobs. We have differing tastes. Sometimes you brutally make fun of places I like to eat and I forgive you for that and still hang out with you. My friends, part of what we struggle with is are we going to be left ashamed? Is it finally going to come out that we were all duped? Oh Lord, let me not be put to shame. Paul's statement about being willing to be made a fool for Christ has bearing here. All right. What he says is the Lord promises, I will shame them. Chapter 17, verses 12 and 13, and then at verse 18. Two more complaints. Fifthly, should good be repaid with evil? I'm at the very end of my rope. Chapter 18 at verse 19. Hear me, O Lord, and listen to the voice of my adversaries. Should good be repaid with evil, yet they have dug a pit for my life. What's he saying? I have done what you asked me to do, and I not only know what you asked me to do, I'm doing this for their good. I'm trying to warn them of what's coming, and they hate me for it. How do you keep telling them this, and how do you keep from the same doom? See, part of this is Jeremiah is not just prophesying and writing for his own day. He's writing for the exiles who ultimately are going to come back to Judah. There's going to be a handful returned. So what does he tell them? Well, part of what he tells them is the end of the 17th chapter. 
where he tells them to honor the Sabbath. They had broken Sabbath. Further, he realized they should realize there's one potter, chapter 18, verse 1 and following, and you're the clay. But they make an attack. Look at verse 18 of chapter 18. Then they said, come let us make plots against Jeremiah, for the law shall not perish from the... Now this is all their bold speaking, right? The law shall not perish from the priests, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. That's their sanctimony. Come let us strike him with the tongue. Let us not pay attention to any of his words. They've shown they won't repent. They have shown that as much as he's tried, they will not listen. All they can do is plot against him for telling the truth. Final complaint. Final protest. Chapter 20. Now, before we read that, look in chapter 19, where he tells him to go by, the Lord tells him to go by a flask. Now, you, you saw in chapter 18 a reference to the potter and the wheel, right? And part of the message to them is, God's the potter, you're the clay. He has the right to do with you whatever he wants to do. My friend, hear me this day. Whether you know Christ or not, hear what I'm about to say. The Lord is sovereign over your life. He's the potter, you're the clay. He has the right to do with you as he wills. And that ought to humble you. But we're back to the potter in chapter 19, only in this case, the clay has been fired. Clay is at one stage workable and another stage unworkable. So what is it that happened that gets this protest? We'll look at the opening of chapter 20. We finally get a name of one of these opponents. Pashur, the priest, the son of Immer, who is chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Then Pashur beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. Now that's most encouraging, isn't it? You come to temple, you come to worship, and they've got a place to put convicts. You get beaten and then you're put in stocks. The next day, when Pashur released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, The Lord does not call your name Pashur, but terror on every side. And he's back to his message. But they have threatened his life. And Jeremiah will continue to prophesy all the way to the point of destruction. What's his cry? What's his complaint at verse 7? Lord, you tricked me. I didn't know what I was getting into. What did I know? I was a kid. I cried about violence and danger, and I'm the one who's in danger. They denounce me. They want revenge on me. I wish I hadn't been born. I'm living in a state of constant hatred and shame. And yet, he trusts. Verse 9 of chapter 20 has helped a lot of ministers, I think, of the gospel along the way when they've wanted to quit. If I say I'll not mention him or speak anymore in his name, 
There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Parts of this sound Davidic, almost psalm-like. Look at verse 11. The Lord is with me as a dread warrior, therefore my persecutors will stumble. Verse 12, O Lord of hosts who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I've committed my cause. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he's delivered the life of the needy from the hand of evildoers. My friends, there are times when it feels like no matter what you do, no matter how much effort you expend, no matter how many sacrifices you make, things get worse instead of better. If you doubt that, I would encourage you to subscribe to a little newsletter called Voice of the Martyrs. My brothers and sisters, the, today the church in many parts of this world are more persecuted than ever before in history. Many are sealing their testimony with their blood. Is that not daunting? Is that not at times perplexing? Are we not in our own time, in our own nation, appalled by what we see? And our warnings seem to fall on absolutely deaf ears. In fact, we are hated for saying what God says. It reminds me of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Boy, I, couldn't, I had to think that Paul had this in mind in Jeremiah when he writes this. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now here's this description. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, not destroyed. Now, folks, I'm here to tell you, when I read the words afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, I don't get warm fuzzies over that. I mean, it's better than the second word, right? Right? It's better than what it's compared to, but the first part's no treat. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. My friends, Jeremiah's complaints are the complaints of the human who has been called by the Lord, blessed by the Lord, cared for by the Lord, and yet finds himself in a place where he's hated for what he does. I can't think, honestly, of a text more apropos to the time in which we find ourselves now. How do we hold on? Well, with all the belly aching, with all the complaining, and oh, by the way, can I point out that the Lord, while he's very honest and blunt with Jeremiah, he never says to him, son, hush, enough. Or as my very rural upbringing included, dry it up. And it's attendant. Stop crying, I'll give you something to cry about. 
That is not how the Lord responds here. He tells him the truth, but he also makes promises. But in all of this complaining, back up to chapter 16 for a minute. Now, I promise I'm not going to preach a second sermon here, okay? It's all connected, and I'm going to bundle it all together here shortly. Chapter 16, in the middle of all of this declaration of, of misery, of don't take a wife, don't take a daughter, don't go to funerals, don't do anything that looks normal. Chapter 16, verse 14. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Behold, I'm sending from in... Some of you sportsmen will suddenly pay attention here. Behold, I'm sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they'll catch them. And afterward, I'll send for many hunters, and they'll hunt them from every mountain, from every hill, out of the cleft of the rocks. For my eye, my eyes are on all their ways. They're not hidden from me, nor their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first, I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they've polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble, to you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. Can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. Therefore, behold, I will make them know this once I will make them know my power and my might and they shall know that my name is the Lord. Now Christian, you and I have more cause than Jeremiah to be hopeful. But oh my friends, whenever we're honest about the struggle we face, the pain that it causes us, let us never lose sight of this promise. The promise is basically four parts. There's coming a day that will be as significant as the Exodus. That's when he brings them from the Northlands out of captivity. He's going to be busily engaged fishing and hunting for his people. There's a day coming when the nations shall come to the Lord. And this happens when the Lord puts forth his power so they will know his name. Now let me make the final connections here. Remember Jeremiah's statement, let me not be ashamed. Fulfill your word. Do these things. And here it promises power. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is what? The power of God to everyone who believes. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.22, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power 
of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Christian, hear me as I bring this to a close. We read of the great powerful acts of God in the Old Testament. And we should. And we ought to find great encouragement from that. And we ought to behold our God and worship. The plagues on Egypt, we ought to wonder. And say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. The dividing of the Red Sea and the nation coming out and God destroying the pursuers should give us encouragement. Every single act of God in the Old Testament is for our encouragement as believers. Even God's acts of judgment on His own people for their lack of repentance. But my friends, when the Apostle Paul wanted to talk about the power of God, and he no doubt has read the book of Jeremiah, what does he say? The power of God was not the exodus. The power of God was not primarily the plagues. The power of God was not primarily him bringing disaster on his people. The power of God displayed is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to see the power of God, then look at the cross through the tomb in light of the throne. Oh, Christian, yes, there are times we will grieve and we'll hurt and we'll complain. And brethren, I'm not talking about those of us who have the curse of grousing. That's not a gift, by the way, it's a curse. If the only thing you can do or the best thing you do is complain and find fault, God have mercy on you. But my friend, when we speak the truth and find ourselves on the wrong side of our culture because of it, let us not be hopeless because the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And the only hope for these poor, benighted, wicked living people is not a moral reformation and is not the next occupant of the White House and it's not any constitutional amendment and it is not any political philosophy. The only hope they have is to repent of their sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This, my friend, the promise, the power of God. Let's pray. Our Father, grant to us now that this your word would give us courage, would strengthen us, would give us spines of steel, 
that it would encourage us in our honesty before the Lord to bring our struggles, our pain, and at the same time to believe deeply that what you have promised to do, you will do. Lord, as you encourage the Apostle Paul in Corinth, you encourage us here. You have many in this city. They have not yet believed. Grant us the diligence, the discipline to loudly and rightly and consistently share the gospel of this living Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray now. Amen. Let's stand.